You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. C.S. Lewis was a a famous author. Um, Many of you may have read some of his uh, books before, but he said this... It's interesting quote, he said, if Christianity is false, it's if it is of no importance. But if it's true, there is nothing more important. If Christianity is false, it's of no importance. But if it's true, there's nothing more important. And it's a strong statement, isn't it? Because it leaves us with this question, is Christianity false or is it true? Christianity is a religion based on the belief in the person Jesus Christ and the beliefs and practices Um, and the teachings of him. So tonight and next week, we're going to throw ourselves in somewhat of a courtroom setting where you're all the jury. You are going to make a decision on Jesus Christ. You'll make the decision whether Jesus is guilty of being being true, uh, guilty of being the Son of God, and whether he's guilty of being resurrected. You're going to be presented with facts, facts that are going to be based on logic, majority of the facts aren't actually going to be taken from the Bible at all. So um, we're not going to be turning up too many Bible quotes. Uh, and, and the ones that we are, um, yeah, will probably be more next week. In fact, as I said, very few facts are about the Bible because if we're taking facts, you know, statements from the Bible to prove the Bible true, um, you know, we get ourselves in a bit of a, you know, uh, round and round type thing. So the purpose of this trial is to prove that the Bible is correct without using the Bible, that Jesus was and is the Son of God, and that he absolutely was resurrected. But as I said, that's going to be a decision for you to make. It's going to be an individual decision based on the facts that you'll hear. So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, throughout this trial, I ask you to be impartial. I ask you to bring no preconceived thoughts to the trial. Many of us have been brought up as Christadelphians, um, and so... We may be able to reel off many of the facts from our upbringing, but I ask you to put that to one side and, and really be able to listen to the facts, make notes on you know, some pen and paper where appropriate, and to critically examine the evidence to make a decision for yourself. So we're going to look at this trial in three steps. We're going to examine the record. So is the record, is the Bible that we have on our lap, is it reliable? So as we said, it's not about what's written in the Bible, but it's more what we have if that is reliable. We're going to analyse Jesus. We're going to look specifically at Jesus to see whether the records match up with him. You know, we're going to look at records outside of the Bible again to see what is written around the same time about Jesus. And we're going to research the resurrection. Is the resurrection actually a valid option? Is it something that uh, could have happened? So, to examine the record... We're going to uh, start with a simple question that can open up a whole can of worms. Is the record that we have accurate? Can the eyewitnesses be trusted? The people that saw and wrote about Christ, are they trustworthy people? And does their record and their recollection ring true? Is the statement or the record timely? Was it recorded in a time frame where memories don't fade and legends are formed? 
was this statement accurate or was there a bias where the apostles lied to make Jesus seem better than he was? Was there key information that was left out because it was embarrassing or hard to explain? Are the original copies of the texts through to the version we read today um, you know, correct? The Bibles on our laps obviously aren't the, the very original copies. They're not the ones that the apostles wrote. Um, so we've got copies on our laps. Are they, um, are they congruent with, with what was written in the original text? Is there corroborating evidence? Are there texts outside the Bible that validate the Bible records of Christ? And then what does science say? You know, uh, when we look at you know, many cases in, that go through courtrooms, they'll, they'll have DNA like blood samples and things like that. We don't have that, but we do have archaeology. So this is a form of science. Does that back up the story? So that's what we're going to look at tonight, but just to give a sneak peek of what we're going to look at next week, we're going to analyse Jesus as well. So, you know, we're going to start with the premise that Jesus was tortured, crucified, died, was buried and resurrected. But if that's true, we need to be able to answer these questions. Did Jesus really die? You know, if he didn't die, then he didn't need to be resurrected. Was he just unconscious on the cross and then, then put in a tomb and then he revived and walked out of the tomb? What about the tomb? If we're, if we're using that as proof that Jesus rose to life, there are some key questions. Was the tomb actually empty? Did they look properly in all areas of the tomb? Was the right tomb looked at? Was it a tomb that was right next door and that one hadn't been filled just yet? Was Jesus actually put in an exclusive tomb? Or was he, like many of the people at the same age who had been crucified, just burnt and placed in a group grave, as was the custom? After analysing Jesus, we're going to research the resurrection. There were no eyewitnesses to the resurrection. An empty tomb doesn't mean a resurrection, does it? So did Jesus really come back to life? But we're going to start by examining the record. So this is an interactive court case. So I'm going to just pose a question to you and there's no right or wrong answer. Um, but if somebody told you a story about something that happened, so just think about this just in blanket terms, if someone told you a story about something that happened, what information would you need to know so that you can be convinced that it's true? Just take things on face value that they're, they're true, you know. Um, and I guess if we look at the content of what the person's saying, we want to be able to believe it somewhat. If I told you this morning I turned into a bird and I flew around the world, you would go, no, that's probably not correct. Um, that's probably stretching the truth a little bit. The four Gospels, and there's a, a um, I guess, on face value, you go, oh, there's, there's a disparity between all of them. So I'm just going to read out these verses. Matthew 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Mark says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So this is the sun had risen. It's very early. Um, so, you know, is, is that dawn or is it not? We've got uh, Mary Magdalene and then we've got Mary, the, um, the, the mother of James and Salome. Then we've got uh, Luke 23. So we've got the women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna. So we haven't heard about Joanna before. She's someone new that's on, on, the, uh, on the scene. Who had come with them at early dawn. So it's not just dawn, it's, it's early dawn. Then John 20 verse 1, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene 
Okay, so did Joanna and the other Mary not come? Came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So, you know, we look at these four Gospels and we go, okay, um, what's going on here? It's a simple story. Surely we can have, um, you know, the, the correct, um, correct words between all of them. But really aren't all correct. It's just as correct to say Mary came to the tomb as saying Mary and Joanna came to the tomb. And it's just as true to say very early in the morning as it is to say it was dawn. And is dawn, has the sun actually risen then or is it just before the sun's rising? You know, it's slightly a matter of, um, a matter of perspective. But the key facts that we do get out of this story is that there was, there was women. We know for a fact that there was Mary, um, Mary and, and Joanna. Um, they came very early. They came to see the tomb. But let's... Um, let's uh, get into examining the record. So we're going to race through many of the aspects of this evidence. So if you want to take notes, um, be, be prepared. But our first question for the night is, can the biographies of Christ and the eyewitness evidence be trusted? So before we, uh, before we look at that, I just want to say the, the value of an eyewitness. A judge was quoted as saying, an eyewitness testimony can be compelling and convincing when an eyewitness has ample opportunity to observe a crime, when there is no ulterior motive or bias, when the witness is truthful and fair, there is often no greater proof. It's quite a, quite a um, big statement. In summary, it's saying that eyewitness accounts are absolutely critical and compelling. Um, provided that they've had the opportunity to observe it, um, there's no ulterior motive. So we're going to pick apart these pieces here. You know, did, did they observe it? Did they, uh, did they have any ulterior motive? Um, were they truthful and fair? So we said before the most important part of an eyewitness uh, record is that we're hearing it from the eyewitness, that they have actually witnessed it themselves. For credibility, we need to ensure that we have an original copy of the record. Hearing from a friend of a friend, as we you know, sort of um, had before, doesn't count as an eyewitness testimony. We want to be sure that the original texts are preserved through to our version. So that leads us on to, I guess, our next question is, are the eyewitness testimonies that we have today actually what the eyewitness testified? For example, is the version of Bible that we have on our laps, is that actually accurate? Well, we know that the original letters that were written have unfortunately been destroyed, um, but that doesn't mean that we have lost the originals. One of the ways that we can be convinced that we know what the originals actually say is through the number of copies that we do have. The more copies that you have that agree with each other, um, especially if they come from multiple geographic locations, the more reliable um, they are because you can cross-check each one to figure out what the original document was like. It's much similar to, you know, witnesses to an event. If we only have one witness to an event, um, there is a possibility that it may not be correct because the eyewitness may have an agenda or even an exaggeration of an event. Um, so we, we may never know the full, full truth. But if we have many witnesses, the probability that what we've got is, um, is, is, uh, is correct, uh, sorry, is, is incorrect becomes minute. For example, if I asked you to write down on a piece of paper an excerpt from a diary entry from one of our members, um, you know, it says, Dear Diary, even though I'm taller than Mason, I still look up to him as my hero until tomorrow 
Phil Milliken. So if we, if we access Phil's diary and we, we saw that one in there and we all wrote it down on a piece of paper to say, this is what Phil's diary said. And unfortunately, Phil has a fire in his house and that diary is destroyed. We've got a number of copies to show that that is exactly what Phil um, has written in his, um, uh, in his diary. So I guess it's important to have a number of copies, but before we look at the Bible, let's have a look at some other uh, significant historical um, accounts. Now, um, I've gone back a very long way to go in, in time period around the Bible, not looking at something that you know, is, is more recent, just to, I guess it's good to compare apples with apples, as they say. So on the screen, I've, um, I've got a number of old writings. I'll tell you a tiny little bit of history about each one. Um, but we've got when they were written, when we've actually got the earliest copy of, of, um, of those, you know, those, those originals there. Um, the time span between when it was written and when we've got the original and the number of copies that we do have. So the 12 Caesars, we'll start with that one. Uh, so that was written in 100 um, to 44 BC and the earliest copy that we have is 900 AD, so a thousand years. That's a, a pretty long time. I haven't done all of the ch fact checking on this, but I believe it is all correct. Um, and we've got 10 copies of those, of those originals. Just so you're aware, the, the Caesars, um, the 12 Caesars is a significant book and a, it um, remains a primary source on Julius Caesar and the 11 emperors. Tacitus was a Roman historian and politician. Many of us have probably heard of Tacitus before. Um, he's widely considered the greatest Roman historian. His writings are the same timeline as Caesar's, however there are twice as many copies at 20 compared to Caesar's 10. Aristotle's writings were in 384 BC and the earliest copy was from 1100 AD, so that's 1400 uh, years later and we've got five copies of the originals. And Josephus, which we do um, you know, quote from, from time to time, um, his, uh, his writings were toward the end of the first century with the earliest copy in 1000 AD, which is some 900 years later, and we've got nine copies uh, of, of those as well. So many of us would have heard of those names. No one disputes what they wrote about, um, and no one disputes that they existed in history. Um, and in fact, the number of copies is actually quite high. If you think about it, if you treat each copy as an eyewitness, if we've got 20 copies uh, or 20 eyewitnesses to something, it is pretty much indisputable. Um, so even though you're going, wow, that's, that's not too many, actually it's pretty significant in, um, as history goes. But streaks ahead of those writings is a, a Greek poem called Homer's Iliad. Uh, that was written in 800 BC. Uh, the first copy was 200 AD, so still a thousand years later but we've got a whopping 650 copies. So um, Homer's Iliad was essentially, essentially the Bible of the ancient Greeks. So it talks about you know, um, the Trojan War and, and things like that. So that places, Homer, um, Homer's Iliad place, is places um, second on the list. The Bible, if we put what the Bible was in there, uh, so written, you know, and this is based on the New Testament, not the Old Testament um, writings because it's the case for Christ. Um, so date written around 100 AD, the earliest copy 150 AD, so we're talking a time span of 50 years. Um, now there's some arguments about how we can get that even closer than 50 years but I've just gone for worst case scenario here. Uh, the amount of copies that we've got of the original uh, is 24,000. 
that is a whopping amount. That is by streaks the, the head of any other um, historical writing uh, to, to go, um, yeah, but basically it's just a mountain of manuscripts to prove the Bible uh, is, is correct. So we mentioned the time frame in there and, and I guess why is that important? Well, the, the closer that it is to the, the original, then the more recent, the more reliable. The longer the time uh, is, legends start to grow. You know, mythology, mythological ideas start to creep in, stories of greatness. If I use an example in some of our lifetimes here, uh, in cricket, not a massive cricket tragic, but here's a fact for you. The fastest bowl that was ever bowled was by a bowler called Shoab Akhtar, who bowled 161 kilometers per hour, which is a very fast bowl. Um, if you ask people that are in their 60s uh, today, they'll tell you that there's an Australian bowler called Jeff Thompson, uh, who regularly bowled over 180 kilometers per hour. So Shoab Akhtar's got absolutely nothing to talk about. That's ludicrous in my mind. Uh, that's 10% faster than Shia Bakhtar, um, which is just ridiculous. That's like saying uh, before sprint guns, there was a sprinter who could run a whole second faster than Usain Bolt. So he's finishing, you know, 15, 20 metres, running 100 metres at 8.5. So it's just one of those things that legends start to grow over time. And, and for us, we live in an instant world, don't we? Something happens over the other side of the world, we hear about it on Twitter, Facebook, or whatever, um, the news straight away. Um, you know, sort of the longest time that goes is about 15 to 20 seconds as um, you know, people scramble to type it up. History is not like that, as we can see on the screen. The majority of history, there's centuries that do go past um, before records are actually written down. And for example, um, if we look at Alexander the Great, you know, you may not know, um, you know some of those things up there, but good fair chance we've all heard of Alexander the Great. Well, um, the most recent biographies, recent in relation to when um, Alexander died, were written by people called Plutarch and Arian. These biographies were written in the first century and the second century res respectively. So that is some 300 to 400 years after Alexander died. So as we said, the, the Gospels were written um, in, in the, first, uh, uh, the first century there, between 50 to 90 AD, which is less than 30 years after Jesus dies. So that's history's version, I guess, of a newsflash or breaking news. And importantly, this is all within the lifetime of the authors. So I guess to answer our question, are the eyewitness testimonies that we have today um, actually what they testified? Absolutely. Um, and the way that we can say that is because we've got that mountain of copies of the original and the time frame that we have is, um, is, is well within the lifetime. So let's have a look at the authors now. Are the eyewitnesses reliable? So the eyewitnesses, let's just use the Gospels. The eyewitnesses here, um, we've got four, four different people. We've got a tax collector, an author um, or interpreter, a doctor and a fisherman. So they're hardly the who's who of the world um, where people like to claim their identity. Um, but they're also, they're not men who would gain in their life by being an eyewitness to Christ, you know, from a worldly sense. They don't have a hidden agenda that's going to benefit them um, in their current life. They wouldn't personally benefit. It's unlikely that a fisherman is going to be able to sell more fish 
just by saying that he knew Jesus. There's no question that the apostles and authors of the Bible were men of integrity because they lived out their beliefs doing harm to no one despite being persecuted, deprived and suffering, which does show great character, doesn't it? There's a school of thought that says when you love somebody, you see the good in them, no matter what they do. So I guess we ask the question, is there a chance that um, that the disciples were so devoted, the the author of the Gospels, so devoted that they changed things in their record to make Jesus look good? And if so, that does make their testimony unreliable. And so yes, the potential for that to happen um, is, is is there. But it also can prompt them to honour and respect uh, Jesus so much because they, they loved him so much that they record his life with complete integrity. And I think there's a fair argument for that school of thought as well because the disciples had nothing to gain by writing this and to, to follow Jesus except for you know, being ostracised and, and persecuted. If anything, they would have had pressure to actually keep quiet, to deny Jesus, to downplay and even forget that they met him. If, if everything that um, you know, was written about wasn't true, why would you put yourself through that? Um, they could have even said that they you know, forgot that they met him and instead they proclaimed um, him even when it resulted in persecution and death. Now, just a, another sort of uh, consideration. When people testify about events that they saw, they'll often leave out details that are embarrassing for them or hard to explain. As a result, this raises questions about the whole testimony because if you know, there's been some parts that have been left out for, you know, for one reason, then it seems that the testimony has been twisted. And it doesn't appear that that happened in the Gospel record. If we um, you know, read different sections, there's stories that are you know, embarrassing for the disciples. You know, Peter is constantly unflattering, um, you know, uh, being rebuked by Christ. The disciples are often squabbling. The disciples repeatedly misunderstand Jesus and they um, often look like a group of self-serving, self-seeking people. And and, um, please take this for the the respect that I do have for them. Um, I'm just trying to paint a picture here. Um, So we know that the authors were comfortable with selecting what they wanted to go on record because John's Gospel ends with saying, all the books in the world couldn't contain the things that Jesus said. But if they weren't comfortable enough to leave out the things that weren't, you know, I guess, comfortable or convenient for them, is it likely that they withheld or added content that had no historical basis? Probably not. So if we recap this little section, the authors did not have a personal gain or benefit, uh, so they wouldn't be motivated to lie or stretch the truth in their record. The record is timely. It's not hundreds of years later where time allows for legends and mythical memories to be formed. Now, even if the authors intended to reliably record history, were they able to do so? How can we be sure that the material of Jesus' life and teachings was well-preserved for 30 years before it was actually written down in the Gospels? And I think it's... Um, I think it's... You know, if we, we put aside that, we know in the Bible it says that the apostles and the authors were influenced by the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, if we put that one aside, it's important to actually remember the time frame in, in when they were written, because back in those days there was no this, there was no computers. That's an obvious one, um, but there was no printers. Uh, 
you know, there was only a certain amount of people that actually could read and write in those days. So everything was passed down orally. Um, in my research, basically it came up that storytellers would deviate 10 to 40% in what they're telling. However, the key ideas would never be altered. And I think that's important to, to have in the back of our mind to go, if we look at the Bible, or, or let's, let's look at an example. If we go back to our diary um, excerpt that we got from, from Phil's diary. There's, there's parts here that may, may be able to be left out. If I was telling you the story of Phil's um, diary and I, I dropped the dear diary, you know, it, does that affect the story? No, it doesn't. If I drop out the until tomorrow, does that affect um, you know, what was written in the diary? Absolutely not. But if I dropped out the, the ideas of Phil being taller but still looking up to Mason um, or Mason being his hero um, or the characters of Phil and Mason, you absolutely couldn't omit those because that's the key information. So from a historical point of view, when we're looking at things from that time frame, again, we know that the authors were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but if they weren't, um, the key ideas absolutely were passed down um, from generation to generation. A uh, Harvard Law School professor, who's actually regarded as one of the most important legal figures ever, um, actually was given the task of studying the consistency between the four Gospels. And he said this quote, there is enough of a discrepancy to show that there could have been no previous concert amongst them, and at the same time such substantial agreement to show that they are all independent narrators of the same great transaction. Essentially, if there's too many similarities between the whole story and too consistent, it would invalidate the Gospels as independent witnesses people would start to say that we've just got one eyewitness account and the rest are just parroting. So let's come back to our question. Are the eyewitnesses reliable? There's no personal gain in their lifetime for the records. It opened them up for suffering and persecution, yet they still testified, which shows great character. Uh, their their um, jobs, you know, they weren't bank robbers. Uh, they were just, you know, standard, standard jobs. They testified, and, and sorry, that talks about their character as well. They testified when it put them in bad light for the sake of truth. The consistency between the eyewitness records shows that they're independent witnesses that saw the same great events and recorded it. So the court's going to be adjourned for this week and we're going to come back next week. But before we do, we're just going to recap on everything that we have seen, the evidence that we've looked at tonight. Can the biographies of Christ be trusted? Can the eyewitness evidence be trusted? Well, we hear directly from the eyewitnesses, which is really important. And um, when we compare this to other religions, uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, other religions, you know, um, some of the more common ones, there's one person who has had a vision um, and, and writes it down. Um, there's one person's teachings that, that people um, pass on. This is from the eyewitnesses of many who, who saw what happened, many um, well, everything that was written down could be corroborated and it also could be contradicted if it was false. There was a uh, massive amount of people who was watching it to go, no, that actually isn't correct and be able to, um, to uh, knock those ones down straight away. We can have confidence in what the original texts say because of the mountain of manuscripts. We absolutely can be confident that we know what was in the originals. We have confidence due to the recency of the manuscripts 
uh, being within the lifetime of the event compared to other prominent historical writings, which are in some instances over a thousand years old. The actual testimony from the eyewitnesses, we can be confident we have recorded correctly. Um, but what about the testimony itself? Can we trust that? Well, as we said, there's no personal gain in their lifetime. It opened them up for suffering and persecuted, yet they still testified. They testified when it puts them in bad light and the consistency shows that they were independent. So can we trust the eyewitnesses and, and can we trust the testimonies that we have? Absolutely. Next week, we're going to analyse Jesus and research the resurrection to see whether the actual content of the testimony is true, able to be trusted and able to be relied upon. Christ. Whereas, um, as Uncle Steve has said, we're, we're looking at uh, Christ from the angle of a courtroom um, and all of us are being the journey, uh, sorry, jury. So last week we started with a quote from C.S. Lewis where, um, where it says, if Christianity is false, it's of no importance whatsoever. If, if it's true, there is nothing more important. And we, we said that this is a really strong statement. Um, but it leaves us with the question of, is it, is it true or is it false? So we threw ourselves into the courtroom last week and, and uh, as you, you as the jury are deciding whether Jesus Christ is guilty of being true, um, is guilty of being the Son of God, and if he's guilty of being resurrected. So you have been and you will be tonight presented with some facts that will be based on logic. Um, and majority of the facts are going to be taken from outside the Bible. So last week we specifically focused on looking at the eyewitness accounts um, and, and uh, examining the record is, is what we titled the little section. So you know, are, are the biographies that we have, are they able to be trusted? Can the eyewitness evidence be trusted? And we started off by sort of doing a, a mini brainstorm of, of saying what do we need to see in an eyewitness to, um, you know, what are the key ingredients so that we can believe them? And um, some of the things that were called out, we said that we have to you know, hear directly from the eyewitness. Um, they have to have been able to witness what, uh, what occurred. Um, the eyewitness themselves needs to be trustworthy. The testimony needs to be trustworthy. Um, and there has to be, you know, if there's multiple eyewitnesses, they have to be consistent without being um, you know, colluded. And it has to be in a timely manner as well. So if we quickly just summarise what we looked at last week, um, we, we summarise the evidence that we looked at by, by, by saying that we hear directly from the eyewitnesses. Uh, we can have absolute confidence in the Bibles that we have on our laps because um, that, that they are aligned to what the original texts say because we've got a, a number of uh, manuscripts. So we, we talked about specifically for the New Testament, there's 24,000 different manuscripts. Uh, so we can be really confident uh, that it does match the originals. And we can have confidence due to the recency of the manuscripts as well, being within the lifetime, and we compared them to a number of ancient writings where um, you know, they're, they're over a thousand years between uh, when they occurred. So the actual testimony from the eyewitnesses, we are confident that we've had that recorded correctly, but what about the eyewitnesses themselves? Well, we looked at them, 
Uh, they had no personal gain in their lifetime for providing these records. Um, they testified even when it put themselves in bad light. Uh, and then the consistency between the eyewitnesses indicated that uh, they are independent witnesses um, without colluding. So tonight we're going to analyse Jesus and, and research the resurrection and see whether the actual content of the testimony itself is true. We can, we can trust the eyewitnesses, we can trust what they saw, um, but what about the actual content? Is, do we have some other evidence to align to that? So we're going to analyse Jesus uh, now. We're going to begin with that. We're going to see whether Jesus really did exist. We've got a, a Bible that tells us that he did, but is there any other evidence? Uh, and one of the things that we want to look at is something that's called corroborating evidence. Corroboration is the ability to compare information provided by two separate sources and find similarities between them. So when a second source provides uh, the same or similar information to the first, the second source is considered uh, corroborating evidence. So if we use an example, if, um, if I was to see someone driving a green car smash into a white car uh, and then drive off, I'm a witness to that crash. The corroborating evidence would be the dent in the white car with little bits of green, uh, green paint and the dented green car would also be corroborating evidence. Corroborating evidence is important, so if we use a bit of an analogy, we all know how an umbrella works. Um, look at corroborating evidence as, as though it's the little spokes. You need to have a number of spokes um, to corroborate the, uh, the original story. The more that you have, the stronger the umbrella, the less likely that you're going to get wet. So is there enough credible evidence for Jesus outside the Bible that we do have? We're going to look at three main pieces of corroborating evidence. Uh, and you may recognise these names, but they were written by a person called Josephus. Uh, there's also Pliny the Younger, and there's another person that's called Tacitus. So Josephus, um, you, you know, we've quoted him um, a number of times before because uh, he was an important Jewish historian. He wrote most of his four works towards the end of the first century. So in his lifetime, he was actually a Jewish priest a scholar and historian, and was well uh, known for providing a link to the secular world of the Romans and the religious world of the Jews. Josephus had this uh, to mention um, in, in one of his writings. He says, uh, and, and this was uh, around the death of uh, James, who was the brother of Jesus. He says, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many of the Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has to this day not disappeared. So I've highlighted um, you know, just some, some key uh, bits of information in there that I'm going to come back to. But we're going to have a, you know, read a little excerpt from Tacitus. Now, Tacitus was a Roman orator uh, and a public official, and he's actually regarded as the greatest historian to write in the Latin language. 
Um, I don't know too many historians that write in the Latin language, but still being regarded as the best has to count for something. Tacitus said, um, uh, this is uh, about Emperor Nero's decision to blame the Christians for the fire that had destroyed Rome in AD 64, which um, was a, a, a fire quite likely actually set by Nero himself. It says, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, uh, from whom the name had its origi origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. This is written in 116 AD, um, so it has some old language in there, but you do get the, uh, the, the gist of the message. And then lastly, we've got Pliny the Younger, or Pliny the Younger, I'm not too sure how it's pronounced. Uh, and he was a Roman author and administrator who left a collection of private letters um, that intimately illustrated the public and private life of the heyday of the Roman Empire. And Pliny the Younger said... Uh, they were in habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ, as to a God, and bound themselves by, by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, and never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate, and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. Um, so that's alluding to the emblems. Um, you know, it's just some, uh, some normal food. It's not that we're uh, you know, partaking of literal flesh and blood. So there are three completely different sources to the Bible, but what are some of the facts that we can actually uncover from each of those quotes? Well, and this is our corroborating in, um, evidence, which is quite interesting because there's a lot of facts that we can actually get about Jesus without reading the Bible. So if we completely ignore our knowledge of the Bible, what do we find out from these? Well, we find out that Jesus was a Jewish teacher. Many people believed he did miracles, healings, and exorcisms. Some people believed he was the Messiah. He was rejected by the Jewish leaders. He was crucified, um, and this crucifixion took place under Pontius Pilate um, and during the reign of Tiberius. Despite the shameful death, his followers who believed he was still alive spread abroad, and there are multitudes of them in Rome uh, by AD 64. And all kinds of people from cities and countryside, men and women, slave and free, worshipped him. Um, so that's quite an impressive amount of corroborating um, independent evidence. There's also an argument that Paul uh, also corroborates the, the, um, the gospel writings. However, as we said last week, we're trying to avoid using the Bible to use our proof. But there is a number of um, sections throughout you know, Corinthians um, that we um, you know, touched on before our talk. There's also volumes of other writings from, other, um, from early uh, popes and elders in the Catholic Church uh, that are regarded as the apostolic fathers of the Catholic Church. Now, while their understanding of the Bible um, and, and the teachings is incorrect, they still do corroborate the evidence of the Bible because uh, there's many facts about his teachings, the fact that he was crucified and he was resurrected that are written in um, quite a number of these apostolic fathers' writings. And there's one that was written by Ignatius, uh, who records how Jesus was persecuted under Pilate. 
He was crucified. He was human. He was raised from the dead. Those who believe in Jesus could be raised from the dead. And all of these things were actually written before the Bible was put together, um, which uh, absolutely adds to the corroborating evidence. Otherwise, it's just like me writing something about the Bible. So if we put all of these facts together, the, the writings of Josephus, the Roman historians, the officials, the Jewish writings, the letters of Paul, um, and from the Apostolic uh, Fathers, we have this really persuasive evidence that corroborates the essentials found in the biographies of Jesus. So even if we were to throw away our Bibles, uh, we still have a picture of Jesus that's extremely compelling um, and unique to the Son of God. So Uncle Steve mentioned before about scientific evidence. We're not going to spend actually a lot of time on the scientific evidence, so it's more just a bit of a side note. Um, but I'm sure many of us would have read or um, you know, watched a, a murder mystery of sorts and you know, there's, there's so many science, um, you know, scientific evidence that is coming, does come into play. Fingerprints and DNA to rely upon. Um, and while in the case of the Bible, as Uncle Steve um, did say, we don't have DNA or fingerprints or blood samples that we can call on, um, archaeology is a form of science and we can absolutely use that uh, to, to rely upon. And it's important to call out when we look at science as, a, as an evidence, archaeology can't tell us that Jesus was the Son of God. It can't tell us uh, what he said uh, or, or what he did or, or what, whether it was right. Uh, just like fingerprints um, or blood samples at a crime scene can't tell what actually took place or um, you know, how somebody was murdered. Uh, but it can confirm whether the geographies and locations of the, that the Bible talks about is true. And this can actually place imp- incredible credence on what the author has written. Uh, just to, to throw it out there, there has been um, found no contradiction in any of the geographic refer- references in the New Testament at all, full stop, which is um, actually quite astounding in itself. There's two professors that are regarded as the top five leading archaeologists in their field. One is called Nelson Gluck and the other one is Ernest Wright that have said in their experience, which is actually a lifetime full of archaeology, and they're, they're recent, so they've only just uh, recently um, hung up the tools, as it were. But they've said in their lifetime, they're yet to see any contradictions to any geographic reference in the Bible, um, which is quite astounding, they mentioned, because the same can't be said about other religions. So what they, their focus was on was religious archaeology. They weren't able to find any contradictions in the, new te- uh, in the, the Bible at all, for any geographic reference. But when they looked at things like the Book of Mormon, uh, you know, they, they can't find any cities, people, place, nations, or names in any geographic um, archeology span dig. As a result, they've actually said that the Bible is now regarded as an accurate source book. So when looking at um, you know, geography, the Bible is used as a source of information rather than trying to, uh, to pull it apart. So that's really all I'm going to say on scientific evidence, but it's quite interesting because uh, it verifies the recorded geographic locations that Jesus walked and visited, um, and they exist in exactly the same way uh, in real life. So at this point in our case, we've examined the record and the eyewitnesses. We've built a case to show that these are incredibly reliable. We've analysed Jesus to build a case, not using the Bible, to confirm that he existed and have corroborated what the Bible has said about him. 
We want to get into the, the main part here, which is researching the resurrection. And this is the, the key to the case for Christ, because this is where the challenge comes in. It, it takes Jesus away from being a historical figure. There's absolutely no, no denying that from the corroborating evidence uh, to being the son of God. Uh, with, without the resurrection, uh, as we read in our reading, uh, thank, thanks Pippos for doing that, we, we don't have a faith, we don't have a hope without it. So it's, uh, it's significantly important. So there's, uh, there's, there's a couple of questions that we're going to look at. Did Jesus die and was he resurrected? So if you look online, there's a, a number of challenges, I guess, to what um, people believe, you know, that, that Jesus didn't die or he wasn't resurrected at all. And there's a number of you know, different ways that they do get attacked. So I'm just going to pick up on a lot of these, um, these different questions, I guess, that get asked about the Bible. And I'm going to uh, try and answer them again, as I said, using, using some logic. So the first question there, did Jesus die? And, and the, the thought behind that was, um, you know, there's this theory that Jesus was never resurrected. He, he actually didn't die on the, on the cross. It was more of a resuscitation. So, you know, he got taken into the tomb. Um, he, he recovered from what he went through uh, and he, he walked out of the tomb and uh, there was no resurrection at all. So Jesus didn't actually die. So medically speaking, is this plausible? Is it possible that Jesus actually did survive uh, what is on record? So medical professionals have provided the following information. Now, due to the age of um, you know, a number of our attendees here, I'm not going to go into graphic detail. I'm just going to really use what, um, you know, what is, is uh, laid out from historical records and, and what the Bible says. But we're going to look at things from a medical angle. And we're going to just step through um, bit by bit just to explore what Jesus actually went through and whether it is actually possible to survive from the medical professional's opinion. So the Gospels claim that Jesus' sweat was like great drops of blood. Um, now, this is a medical condition. I'm sure that most of us have, have, um, you know, have heard that it is a medical condition, and it's called uh, hematidridosis. It's not common, but it is associated with a high degree of psychological stress, and the side effect to this is incredibly sensitive skin. After that, it's recorded that he was flogged. And so the flogging is a whip that contains metal balls, ball bearing type things, uh, and sharp bones. So the bones, uh, sorry, the, the, the metal balls would cause deep bruises and then the bones would cut the flesh severely. Uh, so it happened all over the back, the sides and the legs. There's actually a historian named Eusebius who says that it will result in veins, muscles, sinews and bowels to be open to exposure. So many people, uh, Eusebius uh, recorded, died from this flogging alone. But at the very least, um, there is a medical term called hypovolemic shock, which is where the body goes into shock because of the lack of blood as a result of this. And there's four main things that happen when hypovolemic shock happens. Uh, the heart races, blood pressure drops, kidneys stop working and the person becomes extremely thirsty as the body craves blood to replace the blood volume. So you can, um, you know, we remember from the stories, uh, from the records that Jesus says, I thirst, was extremely thirsty, which is a, a bit of an indication of this happening. 
So at this stage alone, just from what uh, Jesus has gone through, is in a serious to critical condition before there's any nails that were driven through his feet and wrists. The process of the nails going through the, the wrists and feet would have caused unbearable pain. Um, and interestingly, in, in um, uh, my research, the word excruciating actually came uh, from this, which means out of the cross. You can, you can um, see the, the crush, uh, cross part in the uh, word there. Lastly, it's recorded that a spear was thrust into his side to confirm that Jesus was dead. Uh, and, and this was likely going through the lung and into the heart. And we know that because of the water and the blood that did come out. Medically speaking, from a number of experts that have looked at this, there is 0% chance that Jesus could have survived that. However, to provide further evidence, um, it, history tells us that with the, the Roman soldiers, if they did not kill the prisoner themselves, uh, sorry, if they did not kill the prisoner, they themselves were put to death. So um, they're pretty good at making sure that their prisoners uh, were put to death as there's a huge incentive of keeping your life um, alive. I've missed my next uh, little pictures there. Sorry. Um, but let's just, let's play it out just for one second to say that the impossible occurred that Jesus managed to survive the crucifixion. He managed to survive being stabbed in the heart with a spear. These well-trained soldiers did make a mistake. He was put in the tomb and three days later he managed to recover and undo his linen wrap, uh, wrappings and, and fold them up. He then was able to roll away the uh, extremely heavy rock from the tomb even though his wrists had gaping holes in them from holding up his body weight for hours. He managed to sneak past the Roman guards he was able to walk to the disciples even though his feet had gaping holes in them from the nails. Just think for a moment the kind of condition that he'd be presenting himself to the disciples and how inspired they would be to go out and to proclaim that he is the Lord of life who had triumphed over the grave. So we have proof that Jesus lived. Uh, we have proof that he died. But let's have a look at the resurrection. Uh, and, and we've got a couple of things up on, on the screen there because an empty tomb doesn't mean a resurrection. Did Jesus really come back to life? Was the tomb really empty? You know, is, did they make a mistake and they, they didn't uh, actually look at the tomb? They just proclaimed that Jesus was alive. Um, did, uh, did Jesus actually get put into a tomb? History tells us that um, around that time for, for criminals and, and things like that, they just tossed them into a, um, a fire and burnt them. Did they actually look in the right tomb? Uh, these are some of the, the uh, arguments that have been put forward to go, you know, did, did these things actually happen? So, as I said, we're going to look at these with, um, with logic, so I hope you'll just indulge me in a little bit of role play um, in, in just a second. Because one of the, uh, one of the questions was, uh, what, were there actually guards posted? You know, um, why would they have put guards there? Is, is there a chance that the, the guards weren't actually placed outside? The disciples were then able to just steal the body. Well, this is the, uh, the, the role play. There were definitely guards, and, and the reason for that is because of the record that we actually do have. Uh, so here's my role play. The Christians are saying, Jesus is risen. He's, he's, he's out of his tomb. The Jews say... No, 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 no. No, he's not. You've just stolen the body. Well, they respond and say, 
Well, no, because the guards would have prevented the theft. And the Jews say, uh, the guards fell asleep. And then the Christians go, no, 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 you bribed the guards to say that. So our question is, is, were there guards? Well, if you look at this sort of exchange, at step four, the Jews would have said, what guards? What are you talking about? We didn't put any guards in place. So clearly there were guards, because otherwise that's what the, uh, the natural response would have been. Secondly, Jesus was definitely put into a tomb and not burnt, because if not, the conversation would have gone like this. Jesus is risen, the tomb is empty. And the Jews say, what, what tomb are you talking about? We burnt Jesus. And the Christians would have gone, ah, yeah, that's a good point. Thirdly, there was definitely an empty tomb and they definitely went to the right tomb. If there wasn't, the conversation would have gone something like this. Jesus is risen, the tomb is empty. The Jews would say, no, you're looking in the wrong tomb or let's go check the tomb then. And the Christians would go, oh, okay. So... You can, you can see just by, you know, on, on face value, we can go, oh, it happened so far in the past, we can poke these holes in the argument, but logic wins out. Um, and a side point, just um, uh, historically, if we, if we look at the, uh, the empty tomb, we looked at last week that it was discovered by the women going to the, um, to the tomb. I actually think this would have been a little bit of an embarrassing moment for the disciples to record. They were told all throughout Jesus' ministry that he was going to be resurrected on the third day. Um, and they, they, they didn't believe it. They weren't there to actually go and witness the tomb. So this would have actually been a, uh, a fact that could have been hidden up or covered up if it was a legend. Uh, fourthly, there, there are theories that the body was stolen so we just want to play this out and just look at the three main suspects of, of who could have stolen the body. So we had the, the, the disciples who you know, stole the body to create this massive legend. Or was it the Jews who stole the body to prevent the tomb becoming a shrine and, and people worshipping uh, you know, the, the tomb and, and, um, and, uh, yeah, and the Romans stole the body to keep law and order. Well, we know from later accounts that many of the first disciples were executed and exiled for preaching about Jesus. If they stole the body, we need to explain why they'd be willing to die, something, die for something that they have made up. Obviously, you know, we, we know from history that people will die for a belief that they hold sincerely. But no one willingly faces execution or persecution for something that they know is an outright lie. The first disciples had everything to lose and nothing to gain uh, from maintaining a lie. In addition, how could they actually get past the guards that we said were there in, in place? And if they did, why would they take the time to unwrap and leave behind the grave clothes? The guards are just outside, why would they waste time neatly folding these, um, these grave clothes? If they were trying to steal a body, they'd be in and out as quick as possible. If the Jews stole the body to keep the tomb from becoming a shrine, why didn't they just reveal the body when people started to proclaim that Jesus had risen from the dead? 
this would be a surefire way to stop any rumours um, and, and uh, this new religion from getting off the ground. But it uh, obviously never happened. And, uh, yeah, people have put the argument to say that the Romans stole the body to keep law and order. Uh, the Romans were all about keeping peace, so there'd be no motivation to steal the body of an executed religious leader. Uh, nothing more uh, would cause more uh, conflict than doing that. So from this, we, we can definitively say that Jesus was put in the tomb. The tomb was guarded. The tomb was found to be empty. The correct tomb was searched. There are no plausible subjects for stealing the uh, suspects for stealing the body. But besides all of this, it's, it's not actually the empty tomb that's proof of the resurrected Lord. It's seeing him after he left the tomb. So if we have a look at the list of people who are eyewitnesses, we have Mary Magdalene, we have the other women, um, at least two, in, in Matthew. Um, we have Cleopas and the other disciple. We have the 11 disciples and others, the 10 apostles with Thomas absent, Thomas and the other apostles, more than 500 brothers and sisters, and Paul um, in Corinthians. So if we were to put all of these witnesses onto a stand and, and cross-examine them for 15 minutes, that's it, just allocate 15 minutes, and we started at breakfast tomorrow morning, we actually wouldn't finish until lunchtime on Friday. That's how many eyewitnesses there are to seeing the risen Lord. So lastly, there's some circumstantial evidence that I want you as the jury to consider. What other pieces of evidence can we pull in uh, that we you know, don't, I guess, have any proof, but we don't have any reasonable uh, conclusions to be drawn? And, and the first one is that the disciples died and were persecuted for their belief. We've mentioned this a couple of time, but, times, but why? Why would they do that? For good intentions? Well, no, because they are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had seen Jesus alive from the dead. And we, we already explored that we've got these credible uh, people with no ulterior motives, with nothing to gain and everything to lose, who all agreed that they saw something with their own eyes. So there's a difficulty in explaining that away. There's also sceptics who were converted after Jesus was resurrected. So we have James, uh, the brother of Christ, and we've got Saul and Paul. And we've got the recording from Paul that he was completely against uh, Christianity and did this 180-degree uh, turnaround and then did miracles to back up his claims. But one of, the, uh, one of the key important ones was the changes in the key social structures uh, for, for Israel and the Jews. So aside from being God's cho chosen people, one of the things that has made the Jews exist through history has been their national identity to their social structures that God entrusted to them. So, you know, the, the things that they, they did, like the uh, sacrificing of animals, obeying the law of Moses, keeping the Sabbath, um, all of these things were things that they held near and dear to them uh, for thousands of years. And within a short period of time, there's not just one Jew, but thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews were prepared to give up their social structures that they had held close to them and they had served them well for centuries. And it wasn't because they'd stumbled on a new idea, um, I, you know, I, and it wasn't that they were unhappy with their, uh, their old structures. They were actually incredibly content um, and, and placed a lot of value in them. They gave them up because they had seen Jesus risen and miracles occur that they couldn't explain. 
What is the other alternative explanation for these three pieces of circumstantial evidence other than the resurrection? So it's going to be a shorter night tonight. We're, we're going to um, summarise now. But what have we seen? We've seen that the record we have is accurate. We, we've seen that we can trust the eyewitnesses. We've seen that Jesus absolutely existed, that he lived and died, and we've seen that he was resurrected. And that leads us to our closing comments because we started with this quote, didn't we, uh, from C.S. Lewis who says, if Christianity is false, it's of no importance, but if it's true, there's nothing more important. And I actually left off the last bit um, of the quote. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And maybe you're like me, sometimes you treat, uh, treat it as moderately important. You know it's not of no importance, but sometimes we don't place it as high as nothing more important. And the reason why it can't be moderately important is because if Jesus is the Son of God, the teachings are more than just good ideas. They're actually divine insights. If Jesus rose from the dead, he is alive today and able to help us on a personal basis. If he conquered the death, uh, if he conquered death, he can open the door of eternal life for us as well. If Jesus now has divine power, he absolutely has the ability to guide and help us and transform us. If Jesus personally knows the pain of loss and suffering, he can comfort and encourage us. So ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the verdict is over to you to draw your conclusion based on the evidence that we have explored. The decision is yours and yours alone to consider. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.